You're listening to the podcast from King's Cross Church in Charleston, South Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit kingscross.org. Good morning, King's Cross. Um, If you don't know me yet, my name is Chip. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to take it out. If you have the Bible app, um, maybe you can pull your phone out. There are some Sundays where the passages that we look at are maybe three or four verses. There are sometimes we kind of uh, we do kind of overview sermons where we'll look at the mountaintop peaks of a particular passage or perhaps of a particular book. Second um, Timothy three sixteen and seventeen says this: This is all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for correction, for reproof, for teaching, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And we just believe that deeply into the core of who we are as a church. But this morning's sermon, I I think, might test whether or not some of you believe that to the core of who you are. Because I'm going to read all of Nehemiah 3. Uh, It's probably the longest passage that we've actually read maybe this calendar year. It's been a while since we've done one this long. But... um, The profitability, as 2 Timothy 3 says, the profitability of every passage isn't always found kind of at the same depth. So there are some passages you can just kind of walk along and the truth's right there on the surface. You can just kind of pick it up. John 3.16 maybe. There are some other passages where to get to the profitability part, you got to dig a little. Nehemiah 3 is a dig a little passage. But it contains a biblical truth that I believe is every bit as applicable to your life right now today as it was in the 5th century B.C. when Nehemiah wrote it as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to do. It's this biblical truth that I put in your notes. That God calls his people to live on mission. That's a big idea. That God calls his people to live on mission. And what I hope that you will see by the time that our our time in the Word is done is that God calls His people to live on mission right where you are, no matter who you are, what you do, even if it's not perfect and if everybody doesn't agree, because it's worth it. So you can follow along in your Bible as I read Nehemiah 3. Beginning of verse 1. Then Eliashib the high priest, and let me just say, right up front, that I am not an expert on Hebrew pronunciation. So if you are, I hope that you're not triggered as I stumble through a bunch of uh, Hebrew names and I wind up putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable of some of them, okay? So when a lot of just, just give God's grace is sufficient. So Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priest, and they built a sheep gate and they consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. Now, this is the clear indication that the work of rebuilding the wall was understood by everybody involved to be sacred work. They started with the northwestern wall of the city of Jerusalem. It was the outer 
perimeter wall of the temple proper. They started with the sheep gate, the gate through which they would bring in the lambs for sacrifice in the temple. It was done by the high priest and those who worked with him. And when they were done, they consecrated that section of the wall to God. So this is not me just saying that God wants his people to live on mission for the sake of saying something spiritual or something that's on our wall in the lobby. They they understood that this was a sacred work that they were a part of. This was a part of the mission of God. That's why they started where they did with who they did doing what they did. Keep going, verse 2. Next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. Nehemiah, what you're going to see is he's going to describe the work of rebuilding the wall counterclockwise around the city of Jerusalem. Verse 3, the sons of Hassanahah built the fish gate, and they laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Barakiah, son of Meshezabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Baana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. More on that later. Verse 6, Joada, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Basodii, repaired the gate of Yeshanah. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranothite, the men of Gibeon, and Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Herhiah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephaiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem repaired. Next to them, Jedediah, the tiny cowboy from Night in the Museum. (laughs) Just be sure you're... Paying attention, <laughs> right? Next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumpha, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabniah, that was a hard one, repaired. Malkijah, the son of Harim, and Hashu, the son of Pahamoab, repaired another section in the Tower of the Ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. He and his daughters, hashtag girl dad. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They repaired it and built its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits, which is about 1,500 feet. So their section was about four football fields long. A thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate, which was used for exactly what it sounds like it was used for. Malkijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth-Kaharim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, verse verse 15, and Shalom, the son of Colhose, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. He built the wall of the pool of Selah of the king's garden. By Jesus' day, we're pretty sure that that is what they refer to as the pool of Siloam, which you may remember is the site of one of Jesus' um, cleansings, uh, 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 or healings, rather. It was a pool that was used for ritual cleansings. Um, So if you went to offer a sacrifice, and part of what you had to do... um, 
to, uh, to make atonement for your sin um, was to go and cleanse yourself according to the priest and the, the law and the Torah. That's a pool that you would use. So Jesus in John 9 has a miracle that occurs there in the pool of, of Siloam, or here, Selah. So the pool of Selah, the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, son of Azbuk, that's a different Nehemiah than the one who's writing the book, ruler of half the district of Bethzur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. The artificial pool was not one that you could go do a ritual cleansing in because it was artificial. To, to be ritually clean, to be able to go into the temple and worship, you had to cleanse yourself in a pool that was uh, naturally spring-fed, and the pool of Selah was the only one in the city um, that was. Verse 17, After him the Levites repaired, Rehum, son of Bani, next to him Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Kelah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired. Bavai, the son of Hinnadad, ruler of half the district of Kelah. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Yeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section, the opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin. And praise God for Benjamin's mama lobbing us a softball name. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> good call. <laughs> um, and Hashab repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Masaiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Benaniah, the son of Hinnadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palal, the son of Uzziah, we're going to talk about him later, repaired opposite the buttress in the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Penadiah, the son of Parosh, and the temple servants living on Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Almost through, verse 28. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Emmer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shekinah, Keeper of the east gate repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zaleph, repaired another section. We don't get told where sons one through five were, what they were off doing while little brother was getting things done, but at least Hanun was there. After him, Meshalam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Melchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner, and between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. And the sheep gate is where we started (laughs) in verse 1. Nehemiah has given us a complete record of the crews that worked on the wall and of the sections on which they worked. Now, what on earth does that have to do with you? 
Josh sees my manuscripts um, over the weekend before I preach. I, always, I finish late in the week, and I'll, I'll send it to him so that at least somebody else is looking at what I'm going to say. And he told me when he came in this morning, he said, man, I read your sermon, and I wasn't real sure where you were going to go with this one, but I got to the end, and I thought, okay, uh, that makes sense. That's the way it needed to be done. So uh, hopefully you will think that at the end as well. I'll tell you that I think this has a lot to do with you. I think this passage is a bright flashing neon sign reminder that God calls his people to live on mission. Let me show you why I think that. First, I think God calls his people to live on mission right where you are. Just right where you are. I grew up in the church. I always thought of mission for a long time as being something that you had to get on a plane and go somewhere else to do. I was in my 30s before I understood that the mission of God is something that every Christian's life is caught up into in the everyday, ordinary things that you do. In the places where you live, learn, work, and play, in ordinary relationships, in ordinary work, on ordinary days, doing ordinary things, because there isn't anything that isn't sacred to God. And therefore, there isn't anything that shouldn't be sacred to the Christian. So think about what we just read. The priest worked on the wall right outside the temple where they went to work, Every day. But Jedediah in verse 10 repaired opposite his house. So too Benjamin and Hashu in verse 23. And Azariah repaired by his own house in verse 23. So too the priest in verse 28, Zadok in verse 29, and Meshalum in verse 30. And there were people who didn't live in the city, that had traveled from other places. We're told that there are people who came from Jericho in verse 2, and Tekoa in verse 5, and Gibeon and Mizpah in verse 7, Zenoah in verse 13, and Beth Hakarim in verse 14, Beth Zur in verse 16, and Keilah in verse 17. All of those towns are about a 15 or 20 mile radius from Jerusalem. But those towns didn't get destroyed when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came in and destroyed Jerusalem. Those people's homes hadn't been leveled. Their vineyards hadn't been burned. But they left their families and their cities and their jobs and their homes to come down to Jerusalem to participate in the mission of God to restore the city of God by working through the people of God. So here's my encouragement to you. God might call you to go somewhere else like he did people from those cities. That may happen. If you're a Christian or if you become a Christian, though, he is definitely calling you to live on mission right where you are. That you know that's true. So my question is, what's happening in your workplace? What's happening opposite your house? Who's close to you but far from God? Where do you see God already at work around you 
where you could just step into the mission that is already being done? Where do you have an opportunity to love and to serve and to share the gospel with people right where you are? How is your workplace or your school or your neighborhood impacted by sin? And how might God be calling you to be salt and light in those places of brokenness so that the power of the gospel can come not just to you, but through you to begin to do its work in those places right where you are? That's living on mission. You don't have to go somewhere to get on a plane to do it. God calls his people to live on mission right where they are. Second, God calls his people to live on mission right where you are, no matter who you are. doesn't matter who you are, because some of you are already thinking, well, that's true for other people. That's true for you. You're in vocational ministry. But it doesn't matter who you are. If you are a Christian, or if you're someone who is exploring the faith, and you would become a Christian, God is calling you to live on mission right where you are, no matter who you are. It's one of the beautiful things in Nehemiah 3 is the diversity of the people who are involved in the work. There are both men and women, young people and old people, people who were evidently able to repair just a very small section of the wall right in front of their house, but then there's a crew of people who have the capacity to repair a 1,500-foot linear run. There are people from Jerusalem and people from places that are a day's walk off. This doesn't jump off the page. Remember I told you, like, Nehemiah 3 is a dig a little passage, right? But there are also people in here whose past is a little tarnished. There's some people here who not very long before had some pretty public mistakes that they made. I'll just give you one example, but there's more than one. But I'll give you one. In verse 11, there's a guy named Malchijah. Now, Nehemiah just lists his name because he's one of the people who's working on the wall. But Back in Ezra 10, if you remember, I told you Ezra and Nehemiah, these two books are happening at the same time, right? They're there uh, together. Nehemiah shows up about 13 years after Ezra, but it's the same period of time in the city. Back in Ezra 10, Malchijah is listed among a group of priests who had openly sinned, were called out publicly, and had to make sin offerings. And yet, here he is, restored working in the mission of God. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what sins are in your past. It doesn't matter what age you are or what season of life you may be in. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. It doesn't matter how much training that you have. It doesn't matter whether you are new to Charleston or new to the church. God calls his people to live on mission right where you are, no matter who you are. And this wonderful, Holy Spirit-inspired list of people in Nehemiah 3 is divine evidence that that is true. Third, God calls his people to live on mission right where you are, no matter who you are, or what you do. Right where you are, no matter who you are or what you do. I don't know if you picked up on this as we were reading through it, but not everybody working on the wall was a general contractor. 
There are the priests that we already mentioned in verse 1. Goldsmiths and perfume makers in verse 8. Six different civil leaders or administrators are mentioned between verses 9 and 18. These would have been men who were, you know, something like town council members or governors of their town. There's merchants listed in verse 32. And that's just the occupations Nehemiah mentions. Because he doesn't tell us what everybody does. But I think it's safe to say that not everybody had spent their entire life being wall builders. Fair? Hear me on this. No matter what you do, God intends to use that for his mission and his glory. Doesn't matter what you do. If you're a Christian or if you will become a Christian, God wants to use that thing that you do with the majority of your time for his mission and for his glory. You have a certain set of gifts and talents and passions that are given to you by God for God. You have a certain amount of time and money and influence that has been given to you by God for God. You have a role to play in the kingdom of God. Yes, you. I'm not, like, not the person next to you. You have a role to play. Moses was a rancher. Nehemiah is basically a part of the king's secret service detail. The apostles included fishermen and accountants, which is what I used to be. Okay, if God could use me, God can use you. Trust me. Ruth was an unemployed homeless widow. Joseph was a carpenter. Don't believe the lie of Satan that you are not useful to God. Don't you listen to it. Don't fall for the lie that you don't have a part to play in the mission of God because you do. The greatest ability that most of these people in Nehemiah 3 had was availability. That was the greatest thing they brought to the table. They were willing to say, Yeah, I can help do that. You need some of this rubble cleared away? I could do that. You need six or eight of us to to roll this stone back down the hill on these logs? I, I, I can push. I can do that. And some of them had a little more skill, and they said, oh, wait, you need this door frame rebuilt and these bars and bolts? I can, I can do that. The, their greatest ability in most of their cases, was just availability. God calls his people to live on mission right where you are, no matter who you are or what you do. Fourth, God calls his people to live on mission right where you are, no matter who you are or what you do, even if it's not perfect. And spoiler alert, it won't be. Like, we're meeting new people every week. It's so encouraging. I said, one of our volunteers in the lobby uh, this morning said to me, there's so many new faces. So if you're a guest, we're so glad that you're here. Hope you'll come back. Give us, you know, 
three or four or five weeks, because it might be that you showed up on the best Sunday we've had and, and we'll start to disappoint you soon. Or it might be that you, you show up on a Sunday where we just kind of lay down a bunt single, but there's a home run coming. So give us a few weeks. But can I just tell you this? Like if you're here visiting with us because you're looking for a perfect church, you're going to be real disappointed. If you're hoping that I'll be the perfect pastor, you're going to be real disappointed. But, but God's called all of us to live on mission, even if it's not perfect. Verse 8, Nehemiah says this, next to him Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Now, I got a little bit of Bible nerd in me, so I don't like to read over something like that and not know where the broad wall was, so I, I looked it up. The broad wall ran perpendicular to the wall that Nehemiah is describing around the kind of center of the city. It ran off towards the west. And before King Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city, the, the walls around the city it kind of looked like a letter D. You know, like when you were a kid and you would draw bubble letters? It kind of looked like a bubble letter D. And Nehemiah is rebuilding like the north-south part. But there's that, like the the round part of the D in the bubble letter, those walls were still destroyed. That part of the city was still vulnerable even after Nehemiah's work was done. And the broad wall would have been part of that wall in the kind of bubble out. Well, they didn't repair that part yet. So when the work of Nehemiah is finished, things are better, but they're not perfect. They're not as good as they were before Nebuchadnezzar showed up. There's this reference in verse 25 to the upper house of the king. Now, if you call something the upper house of the king, what does it imply that there is? A lower house of the king. Very good. Right? A lower house of the king. So there's a woman named Dr. Elliot Mazar. She's an archaeologist with the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And she's done a bunch of work, uh, archaeological work, to uncover this part of the city that Nehemiah is describing here. And so her work indicates that this part of the wall shows, quote, evidence of hasty construction. Now, that does a couple of things for us. First of all, it validates for us archaeologically Nehemiah's claim that we're going to get to in a few weeks that the entire wall was rebuilt in 52 days. So we have evidence right now that that, that is true. But it also tells us things weren't perfect. So it's cool to me that 2,400 years later, Palal, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower, projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. And Dr. Mazar can still see that work. Like one day, if she's a believer, she's going to be in heaven and she's going to meet Palal, the son of Uzai, and she's going to say, hey, I dug up your wall. I think that's pretty cool. But she also is looking at it and going, yeah, whoever did this was in a hurry. <laughs> right? It wasn't perfect. Now, I don't know why. Maybe Palal didn't get all the right you know, resources that he needed. Maybe he didn't have any idea what he was doing, and he just did the best he could. But it wasn't perfect. And here's my encouragement to you. Just because someone else can do it better 
Just because you're not going to be perfect at it doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. God doesn't need you to be perfect. He needs you to be willing. He needs you to be available. There are people who preach better than me. There are people who sing better than Jacob. There are churches that serve their local schools better than we do. There are people who share the gospel better than you. So what? You don't have to be perfect. Palal wasn't perfect. But the wall stood. The point is not to be perfect. It's to be available and to be faithful to live on mission right where you are, no matter who you are or what you do, even if it's not perfect. And then you open your hands and you trust God with the results. Fifth, God calls his people to live on mission right where you are, no matter who you are or what you do, even if it's not perfect and some people disagree. Even if some people disagree. Did you catch in verse 5? The Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Tekoa is about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. Evidently, word of the project gets out. People go on Indeed, put in there in an ad. They need some construction workers, manual labor, day laborers. There's a bunch of people said, I'll go. But some people in Tekoa thought, ah, too good for that. Or maybe they thought, I don't want that to happen. I don't want that wall rebuilt. Because as long as Jerusalem's weak, then Tekoa's not as big of a target. I I don't know why they wouldn't stoop to serve their Lord. But verse 5 says they wouldn't. They disagreed with the work that was being done. We saw the same thing at the end of chapter 2. Nehemiah 2.19 says, When Sinbalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, servant of Geshem the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing you're doing? If you set your face to serve the Lord, some people will disagree. If you commit your life to obeying the Lord, some people will disagree. If you raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, some people will disagree. If you reject sin and embrace holiness and try your best to live on mission right where you are, there are going to be people who disagree. Look, you understand you can't please everyone, yes? You surely can't please God and everyone. So you should expect opposition. Expect people to misunderstand. Expect that some people are going to jeer at you and despise you. John 15, 20, Jesus says, Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now hear me, we don't go picking fights. Like outrage and anger and fighting are not listed as gifts of the Spirit. 
We try our best as Christians to live at peace with everyone as much as it is up to us. We don't go out looking to create discord or, or, or to sow division. That is not our call. But if they disagreed with Jesus, God in the flesh, chances are they're going to disagree with you if you're trying to follow him. And so you just have to expect that. And you have to resolve to live your life in response to the gospel, in response to the good news that though you are not perfect and your sin has separated you from God, there is one who was sent by God who lived a perfect life and loved you enough to step into your place as your substitute and die for your sin. And that by God's grace, through faith, if you reject your sin and repent of it and turn to Him, you can be forgiven and restored and reconciled to God, granted eternal life. And the righteousness of Christ can be declared and imputed onto you. And you have to live your life not trying to earn that because there isn't anything that you can do. Jesus has already done everything necessary for your salvation. You live your life in response to that. Not trying to win a popularity contest. Jesus wasn't real popular. But he was righteous. He was holy. And he was on mission to seek and save the lost and reconcile a lost and dying world to his Father through his death and resurrection. And God now calls all those who would follow Jesus to live on mission right where they are, no matter who they are or what they do, even if it's not perfect, and even if some people disagree. And the reason that we can embrace that call is because we know, lastly, that it's worth it. It's worth it. God calls his people to live on mission right where you are, no matter who you are or what you do, even if it's not perfect and some people disagree, because it is worth it. The promise of the gospel is not that you will be the most popular person at your school or at your work. It is not that you will suddenly become perfect in your skill set or your behavior or your planning for the future. The promise of the gospel is not that you will live a pain-free life with a full bank account, an empty inbox, and a well-used passport. It is not that you will die a peaceful death at a ripe old age, surrounded by friends and family, singing hymns and songs and spiritual songs the day after your team wins a championship. That's not the promise of the gospel. The promise of the gospel is that you get God. That's it. And that's enough. Because he is worth it. He's the only thing that's worth it. And that promise... makes it all, whatever it is, makes it all worth it. The legacy of Palal, the son of Uzai, is not that he built a sketchy little section of wall in Jerusalem in the 5th century B.C. 
The legacy of Palal, the son of Uzai, is that he served God right where he was for the sake of people that he would never know that long after he was gone would benefit from living in Jerusalem and worshiping at the temple long after Palal was with the Lord. He was faithful to do what he could, where he was, with what he had. Just like every other name that we read in Nehemiah 3. And friends, that's what God is calling us to do too. Why else would the Holy Spirit in his sovereign wisdom say to Nehemiah, you write this stuff down? Because people 2,400 years now are going to need to be encouraged that their lives matter. That God sees them. That there's a place for them in the kingdom. And we live our lives now on mission for Him in response to the gospel in which we stand and by which we are being saved. The beauty, the inspiration of Nehemiah 3 is not the organizational skills of Nehemiah. It is the wonder And the majesty of a God who chooses in his steadfast love and faithfulness to invite his people into his mission. It is the wonder and the majesty of a God who would call people like you and me to live on mission just right where we are. No matter who we are, doesn't matter what we do. And he knows we're not going to be perfect. And we know that there are some people who are going to disagree, but it is worth it because he is worth it. Let's pray. Father, you have given us your word. And we recognize that it is profitable for Reproof and teaching and correction and instruction and righteousness. We want that to be the case this morning as we have considered Nehemiah 3. Would you, would you allow by your spirit for it to take root in our hearts that we might be inspired not by the names that we read in Nehemiah 3, not by Nehemiah's willingness to be a bold leader but by the awesome wonder that you would consider us worthy of your mission and that we might just be faithful to do what we can with what we have where we are. Would you help us that it might be so for your sake and for our joy in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We hope that you were encouraged by the Word of God today. Take a moment to click the subscribe button on your screen, and you won't have to come searching for us next time. Until then, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.